It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Matt Buley, CEO of Hope Haven. Matt has been an inspirational social sector executive with a 20-year track record of propelling organizations towards their vision. A warm, energetic, and motivating leader, he drives healthy and effective work culture. As CEO of Hope Haven, he has strategic and P&L responsibility for a $50 million budget and leads a staff team of 750. Matt was a lead advocate for legislation during the 111th U.S. Congress that keeps siblings together in adoption and has raised millions of dollars for programmatic and capital projects. He was recently named the 2022 Executive of the Year by the Iowa Association of Community Providers. Matt holds a Master of Public Affairs from the University of Minnesota and a Bachelor of Arts, magna cum laude, in English and Speech Communication from St. Cloud State University. He married his college sweetheart, Teresa, and they have four children whom they adopted as a family group in the Philippines. His hobbies include reading, fitness, and finding his way outside with the family and their two dogs. Matt Buley, welcome into the corner office. Thanks so much, Brant. It's great to be on with you. And by the way, it's been great to listen to the podcast too, so enjoying it. Oh, I appreciate that. Always good to get the good feedback. Well, we got a lot of listeners out there and a lot of folks that work in the social sector. And uh, as we spoke a month or two ago when we first got introduced, you didn't get started there. And uh, we want to talk about that transition because there's a lot of folks out there who, like you, maybe started in the private sector and ended up in the public. And, you know, the thinking behind that's, of course, an important thing. But we, we always like to start at the beginning. So, Matt, tell us a little bit about your early family life, where you grew up, brothers and sisters. What part of the country was that? Yeah, thanks, Brent. So I'm sitting in my office in Rock Valley, Iowa, in the northwest corner of the state, which is not traveling too far from where I grew up. I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yeah. My parents, a few years after that, moved down to a small-ish town called Elbert Lee, which everybody knows uh, if they know it because they've driven by on either Interstate 90 or 35. So it's at that cross section right. uh, up in Minnesota. And um, yeah, graduated high school from there and spent all of my formative years for, for in Albert Lee. So that's, that's definitely where I'm from. Brothers and sisters. I have two sisters, both younger, uh, one of which was 
was born when I was 15. So oh, wow. sometimes that yeah. she had four parents, you know, like, yeah. people, so. <laughs> lucky her. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Worked out great for her. Oh gosh. What about mom and dad? What kind of work do they do? My mom and dad, my dad was an officer in the army reserve and national okay. guard, um, and spent, really spent a lot of time focused on that. Although he also worked vocationally in a few other areas, one of which was as a jeweler. And uh, he actually worked when I was in high school. Um, He actually went through a job loss and it was very uh, formative for me to have walked through that as a child uh, going through that. I think actually had a lot of impact on me uh, in my future and just uh, some of the drive that I have. But How how old were you at the time when, when dad went through that? I remember him coming home. So they sold this jeweler and I was in sixth grade and I remember him coming home on that last day. Of course, we knew it was coming. And that was, that's a heavy thing, you know, something that they were, they were carrying. But as a a kid at that age, you're, you're very aware of it. And not like today, you know, when that happened, it took actually a couple of years before he was working again. And uh, that was yeah, that was significant, of and course. Some lean, so, lean times then. What were you like single digits at that time or already uh, in your pre-adolescent years or what? How old were you? Yeah, in those adolescent years yeah. for sure. So kind of yeah, into middle hard. school there. Yeah. yeah. So, and my mom was, uh, she, when I was a kid, I remember her mostly working at JC Penney. Okay. Um, I always looked good at the start of the school year. <laughs> Kind of those special back to school deals. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> right. discounts. <laughs> exactly. And then she worked administratively for the school system, um, largely actually after that. So that's when, in fact, she worked at the high school when I was in high school. And yeah. so a lot of memories of my yeah. mom around. Cool. Yeah. Cool. And uh, what about school? Were you a good student? Uh, that's a great question. I've heard you ask others that. So I thought about that on my way to work this morning. No, no, I was not a good student because to me, being a good student means you care about it, at least yeah. in part. And there's there's two parts to the story. But when I my mom would say, hey, I've got parent teacher conferences tonight, so I know what I'm going to hear. And it was always Matt has so much potential. You know, yeah. I want yeah. those kids that wanted to hang out with friends, wanted to be the class clown, whatever it was, was not very focused on my studies. I love to read. Um, I even like to do creative writing in the summer. I would mess around. And I was one of those kids who always got the one of the awards at the end of the year for being at school every day. So it wasn't necessarily not caring, but I just, it, I didn't enjoy it. Apparently I, I have a very, you didn't have the interest probably with some of the, yeah, I, think, yeah. I think that that was it. The reading and the English that that kind of captured imagination. What was your favorite book growing up? Remember from elementary school or high school? That's a great question. You know what I remember a lot is reading Hardy Boy books. Oh, those! <laughs> those I, I, I don't oh, know how yeah. many of those there were, but yeah. Oh, yeah. I know I devoured them. <laughs> yeah. So cool, cool. What about outside activities? Involved in sports or you know any clubs off campus? Yearbook, any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, I was really involved in stuff when I was in high school. I would, I was a late bloomer, so I got mildly at athletic about the time I was nineteen. So it was a, okay. a waste for high school sports, um, but I did. But I did like it. I, I played hockey. I oh. dabbled in football. Actually, I played tennis uh, all through high school. Um, so I did. Um, get involved in that. And to this day, I still really like doing that. And we like getting out yeah. and all that good cool. stuff. But yeah, a lot of events I, I was in yearbook. I did the sports editor stuff for yearbook. And 
was in choir and just kind of all those those various things was was always up for for joining into something which you know I do think had some impact on my grades again it was just there was a little bit of distraction for me I was more interested in doing other things until I got to college and then uh, then I really started to take it seriously so what about entrepreneurial things growing up did you have a ubiquitous paper route or sell Christmas cards or, or maybe help out at the jewelry store Oh, you know, I, I, I loved to work and that has followed me my whole life. Um, I had, just like you said, I had a shopper paper wrote when you could have that at the age I was, which oh, yeah. I don't know if that was 12 or 13, it was somewhere in there. Um, and then I graduated to the, the actual newspaper, the Albert Lee Tribune, you could deliver that then. I think there was an age threshold, but there's a grocery chain in the Midwest here and, uh, really central Midwest. In fact, it's not all over here, but it's called Hy-Vee. And I, mm-hmm. yeah, that was my yeah. first, you know, quote unquote, real job. But I, mm-hmm. uh, I picked rocks out in cornfields for farmers. Um, <laughs> if there was money to be made, I was in and we won't talk about what the hourly rate was at that. <laughs> no, no. We could talk about how you spend it, though. I'm yeah. interested in that. Was it? Was it? Was it kind of? Did you have a savings? You know, kind of mentality. I mean, you went through some times with with you know dad out of work and so forth. But did you have to contribute to the family, or were you you know someone who you know had had his vices and collected with those baseball cards? What, what was you yeah. know, what oh, were your uh, spending things? That's great. Um, I, to my parents' credit, I have no memory of having contributed. Um, they must have protected me from that. I can remember yeah. getting to an age where I would buy clothes and I like to do that. But when I was a kid, I was all about music. I would go and buy ah. albums and these were on yeah. vinyl. Um, yeah. And, you know, singles. Well, we should explain to our listeners what vinyl is. Right. Vinyl is when <laughs> records used it's to come thing. out in 45s and, and, you know, 33 and a thirds. And it spins. Cool to have them. Well, that's true. Yeah. 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 But I I haven't jumped back in. Yeah. Right. So many people do. It's actually pretty Uh, cool. And they say the sound is better. To me, I'd rather just turn Spotify on. I'm kind of lazy now. I'm totally that way now. I got on my channels. What, what, What music did you like during high school? You know what? I can remember my parents being amazed when uh, my buddies and I got into the Beatles. So by that point, it was yeah. CDs. And I would, I, I can remember early on, I didn't like if I got a paycheck and I went and um, went out to eat. I, I, I figured out early on that I didn't have anything to show for it then. So mm. it wasn't like I was necessarily investing or anything. I was saving. But it was more about, well, what do I have to show for it? So, you know, in high school, I had had a bunch of CDs because we would drive up to Best Buy in Rochester or in Burnsville, Minnesota and buy CDs. And that that comes circles back around because that's where. Yeah, we're we're talking about Best Buy in a minute. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So so I had a lot of a lot of interest in music for sure. And to this day, that's true. But all the CDs are gone now. Uh, you know, that's right. Yeah. That, we we got that Spotify on our game. iPhone. Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> some people are hanging onto their CDs and I'm going, I don't get it. But hey, at least no. there's somewhere there to buy mine. Can't store those things. Can't, no. Can't no. That's where I'm at. <laughs> so you went to St. Cloud State. Now, were you the first in your family to, to go to university? Did mom and dad have degrees or was that something that, um, you know, they had motivated you to do or are you following in their footsteps? That's a great question. My dad did. He had a, uh, from another state school in Minnesota, he had a sociology degree. My mom, yeah. she had gone to an administrative sort of certificate program cool. um, and built off of that. 
so there, there weren't a ton of college degrees just in our family and extended family. I do think that it was something that was built into me. Yeah. Uh, it, my mom did a really good job. I, and I've thought about this. I would like to go back in time and study her and figure out how <laughs> she built into this growing boy confidence. You know, it's just, such, mm. it can be such an elusive thing, but oh, I, yeah. somewhere in there, I became convinced that whatever is going to come, I would figure it out, you know? And that's mm. just, to me, that's wow. sort of this basis of confidence. And so yeah. I knew that I could I could handle it. I, although I can remember, so I graduated graduated high school, and my GPA was was somewhere in the twos. It was middling at best, and and that goes back to what I was talking about earlier. But I can vividly remember sitting at my desk after my it was a quarter system in college, and mm-hmm. I had gotten my first report card, and I was staring at that thing, and it had three Bs and a C, and I can remember realizing. This report card was not going to go to anybody else. It didn't matter to anybody else anymore. I was right. an adult here. Who I was yeah. doing this for was me. So was sink you? or swim. Yeah. You know, this this wasn't about proving anything to anybody. I just needed to do it or not do it. Yeah. Well, and, and that, that was and three Bs and a C is a step up from the mid twos in the <laughs> standpoint. So well, that's, yeah, that's it's good news. Right. Yeah, it's somewhere <laughs> in there. But after that, I I don't know what it was. But by the start of the next quarter, I had stopped screwing around, and and from there, I. I got good grades. So that's, it took me a while to wake up. So it's never too late, you know? Yeah, it's great. And you pursued an English degree. So kind of your, your love of writing guided your degree choice. Is that true? You know, or love of reading, right? For sure. That was there. I can remember somebody telling me, you know, this, this four-year degree is largely about getting your card stamped, get your bachelor's. Yeah and right. on to the next thing. Don't get too hung up. I actually went to school thinking I would be a teacher uh, and then mm. got almost to the first step in student teaching and realized I didn't have the patience for it uh, and right. uh, decided to just switch into it. And it just made this as English and communications. I, I did speech communication in there as well and just enrolled with that. And it yeah. worked, you know, just getting into Best Buy from there. It, it was kind of what I needed just to get in. I can remember, we'll talk about Best Buy. But yeah. I, so well, Best Buy was your first job. Yeah, was there, right. Were there other jobs that you had during college? You know, were you working? Did you help, you know, pay yeah. for tuition and so forth? Or I paid for college. Or, yeah. I yeah. paid for it all on my own. So um, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. That was, and that was part of it was my parents being lower middle class. That mm-hmm. was a contribution because I was able to get, you know, grants and scholarships that sure. wouldn't otherwise been available to me. So that right. did help, but I worked the whole time. I, I did yeah. sports writing for a while. I worked at a gas station for a while, right. just whatever it took. To, you know, I can remember sitting and, and doing my homework while I, you know, waited for the next customer to come in and buy their yeah. cigarettes yeah. or whatever. So it's just. Uh, and then full-time, full-time summer jobs too. Uh, yeah. In addition to working in the academy. Always. Yeah. yeah. I did, yeah. did siding one summer, worked at John Deere in a distribution center, center another summer. So yeah, I, I was always keeping busy with those things. So Best Buy was the first job after graduation. Now, did they come to recruit at St. Cloud or how, how did you find, I mean, you'd been there before buying CDs and vinyl, yeah, right. so we know that. <laughs> yeah, they, what attracted them to you as an employer? Yeah, the, the issue at hand was not uh, me wanting to work at Best Buy. You know, it was more a question of wh- whether or not I could get my foot in the door, but right, right. they they did recruiting uh, because they were 
they're building up so that they had brought in a new VP who wanted to overhaul inventory just in time shipping. And some of those kinds of things were really starting to take hold. And uh, they decided to recruit recent college graduates. And it was this period of time where there were jobs to be had. It was shortly thereafter that that the tech bubble burst and that changed uh, for a while. But there, you know, I know that a lot of fellow students were getting multiple offers and we had options. So I I met Best Buy. They did a they did recruiting at St. Cloud on campus. Yep. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I got my way into the job and it's, it's definitely, it was one of those things that you don't realize how good you have it until it's over with, but they brought in like 20 of us who had just graduated college right at the same time to do same thing, but in their different business units. And we just had an absolute blast, you know, all these people, the same age, um, it was just such a fun place to work. I, to me, it was, it was just a great culture experience, you know, whether or not that was something that they sat down and said, Hey, this will be really good. And these, these young people will get all this energy from one another. Um, it, it worked that way though. And the, the st- I was there. The stock just absolutely shot. That was about twenty years ago. It was not too long after their founding, or, or the real growth period, I guess. Right. That's they exactly started in right. Minnesota, and then they, they began did. expanding nationally. Yeah. Yeah, they were the sound of music uh, right. early yeah. on, and then they became Best Buy. And they, we were yeah. part of what I did there was the new store openings, yeah, and cool. that, that was happening a lot at that time. And of course, the footprint was different. Now Best Buy has gone to a smaller store. Yeah. Um, at that time, it was it was more Target just for a yeah the big box yeah. yeah exactly. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was great opportunity there um, to step into that role and to have the management scope that it had. Um, you know, I can remember Hewlett Packard, we were, so I was in the computer division uh, on, on the marketing side yeah. when for the first time they did a billion dollars of business uh, at Best Buy. Uh, and, you know, we, we all got like a coach wallet. I was like, my gosh, this is, this is crazy. <laughs> You know, this is a whole different, uh, ballpark, but uh, yeah, so it was really cool. It was it was a fantastic place to learn. Um, and I, when I started the stock, I need to get these numbers exactly right, but I can get close. The stock was selling somewhere in the mid sixes. Yeah, I left. It had split split twice and it was in the sixties. It, it, it wow. sh- we shot up the Fortune five hundred. Yeah. Uh, and it was just uh it was a blast to be able yeah, to good fun. Now did you manage people in that job or were you an individual contributor for your three and a half, four years there? Yeah, I did. Um I moved they moved me into a senior analyst role and right. at that point you had a small team. So that actually yeah. when I was in high school and college, I was working sometimes in the summer Uh, at Godfather's Pizza, a pizza place. And that was the first time uh, I was made a supervisor and had at least some team responsibility. But then that was, you know, professionally, uh, that was the first time it happened was when I was at Best Buy indeed. What were some of those challenges in those early years of managing others? I can get tempted at times to micromanage. Mm. Uh, I've had to be observant of that in my career to say, just step back. And actually now, I don't find that hard to do, but yeah. now being a CEO, the, the people who report to me are director level people who are high performers. They're, they're not hard to manage. You know, right. when, when we, where management gets, I think more 
complicated or sticky here is it's probably it's happening not at the level of people that are reporting to me but but early on you know um definitely everybody has a different work ethic ethic obviously yeah. you're, you're going to face different issues and and that was all you know pretty trial by fire which is not to say i didn't have support we had an hr department yeah and all of that kind of stuff. But it was after jumping uh, into the social sector, did so at a couple of smaller organizations where, you know, you, you had your team and, and you were the one to figure it out, you know? Right, so right. you're a but little, you made that, coming, so. yeah, you, you made that shift at Best Buy. So tell us a little bit about that. Cause you were there about three and a half years and you went to hospitality house youth development, I think, right. Was that your yeah, transition. exactly. So what, what was it that, yeah. Can, can, what, what was kind of the thought process? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I am. Um, so I'll, I can step back now from my perspective and say at that time in my career, I thought the grass would be greener in the social services sectors. Mm. What I, I don't think I realized the impact that I could have, including in my community, if I stayed at Best Buy and worked my way up the marketing ranks. That would have been uh, a very useful thing to have done. What I thought was, hey, I don't want to make shareholders money anymore. I want to do mm. And I want to drive home at the end of the day and I want to feel like somebody's life was improved yeah. in some way because I was there. Now, again, that was short-sighted because, and what I found is now I've been in nonprofit or social sector work throughout since then. And you don't, you don't drive home at the end of every day thinking about that kind of stuff. You know, yeah, yeah. it's not the way it works. I was a little naive, but that was, that was the driving factor. And then Hospitality House primarily does youth serving programs yeah. in North Minneapolis. And so it was entirely different. You know, I went from, you know, all marketing meeting to midnight basketball and, <laughs> right, that. Right. and I started doing marketing for them and then I got into fundraising, but it, you know, it was a total, what was the, what was the impetus? Had you always had kind of a social, you know, service, uh, conscious, was there volunteering that you did something that your mom maybe, you know, did and observed, you know, where, where do you think that came from in your, uh, in that early, because you were, you know, you were 23, 24, something like that, right? When you first joined? I think it was maybe a missional orientation to mm. say, I, I want to do something that's meaningful. Yeah. That's not to say that we didn't do things that were volunteer centric. Certainly it was, it was the case at church. Um, and I was involved right. in some things like we did. Uh, we did something that was a support our troops thing when I was in high sure. school and it was student led. And so there was, there was some inkling that way. Um, but I, I would say there was something that about it was more meaning at work than probably there's this specific demographic of people that I want to step in and mm. something to yeah. help them. And that's that has followed me from the perspective that it has been different people groups that have been supported in the organizations that I've been in. But right. certainly, you know, it was a it was a great organization doing great things. Uh, and it was it was fun to make the jump into it. Was it an advertised position? Did you have somebody that contacted you? What how, what kind of opened the door for you to that opportunity? Yeah, that was an advertised position. Yeah. So yeah. I just saw it. Now, then I came to find out my wife and I had been, we got married young um, and yeah. got- So plugged. you were married at the time? Yes, married I was. Yep. Uh -huh. So um, we, we were plugged into a church and come to find out that that church was supporting this organization. Mm. So there was kind of some neat inroads, but I only knew yeah. that because I yeah. saw it in the Star Tribune newspaper. Yeah. Cool. So, 
So you spent uh, a few years there and then, and then a big portion of your career was with Children's Shelter, right? Where you had your first CEO position, right? You became yep. president there. Tell yeah. us a little bit about their mission and, and, you know, the transition there, because obviously that was a focus on youth as well. Yeah, for sure. And there, there's a tie for me in that. Um, I've yeah. always just enjoyed kids and being around them. Um, so at the Children's Shelter of Cebu, the heart of their organization is in Cebu City, Philippines, which is yeah, the second right. largest metropolitan area in the Philippines. Right. And I got- I've actually visited there. I, I lived in Singapore for 10 years in my corporate career and had office sure. in Manila and have gone to Cebu. And I'm sure you've been there several times as well. And it's a beautiful part of that archipelago. It really is. I mean, you know, talk about scuba diving and uh, yeah, so the, right, the ocean there right. is just absolutely gorgeous. So yeah, I, I went there a lot. Yeah. So yeah. I was, we were based in the Twin Cities and a lot of my work was focused around, you know, fundraising and donor development. But then I, that began to expand. I was going to the Philippines a few times a year. And of course, you don't, you don't do a trip from the Midwest to the Philippines in a few days. You know, you're going to be gone for a while. So I was getting some nice chunks of time yeah, yeah. over there and just a fantastic place. There, the, the purpose of that work is to provide housing for children that have been orphaned and then also an education right. program. So they have their own school. Uh, and, and actually, a side note, my wife came with me on a trip and we met our four kids. So they were living at the shelter. We met them and felt a clear calling to adopt them. We thought what we would adopt. We got married. We said, we're not going to have kids. And then we started to think, well, maybe we'll adopt, but I don't think we imagined adopting older kids. Well, we met the sibling group and, and went, wow, I really feel like God is telling us to adopt these kids. And we wanted to nice. process and digest that. So six. How, how old were the kids? How old were your kids at that time? Yeah, They came home when they were 14, 11, 9, and 7. Wow. Blaine, Minnesota. Oh, wow. Yeah, English yeah. Uh, as a second language. And yeah. uh, they're they're awesome. They're uh, We have with the four of them are somewhat nearby. We were just up in the twin cities and visiting them. One lives in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which is where we live, but we got three grandkids on yeah. it's way too cool. Oh. It was fun. But yeah. anyway, fabulous. Yeah. yeah. So that was the purpose of the children's shelter of Cebu. I had an interest in, super interesting. So company. it was, it was based in Minneapolis mostly for development purposes then, right? Yeah. For fundraising, et cetera. Cause normally yeah. you would have been based in Cebu or, how did that work? Was it uh, a small staff here and a larger staff there? Or how did that work organizationally? Yeah. So small staff in the Twin Cities and then the larger staff yeah. was over in the Philippines because there's a Bethel University uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. That was where a group of young people were going to college, graduated, and then ended up on this mission trip to the Philippines that decided they were going to do something yeah. about the the situation with orphans there and so this organization started and then is based in the twin cities um and i yeah, yeah so here i start and the title was u.s director uh after seven eight years in that role our founder and president sat down with me and said you know i i think it would be more useful to the organization for the president to be in minnesota and i thought I got to get out of here. You know, I've gotten to support <laughs> the president in the Philippines. If the president's in Minnesota, 
I'm going to be reporting to them. I'm never going to go to the Philippines anymore. My job is going to change completely. So I have this, you know, crisis for about a week. A week later, we sat down again and he said, well, no, I I was thinking you should have that job. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, wait. (laughs) And this is a a different situation. That's what you meant. (laughs) Right, exactly. Thanks for the the panic attack for a week. (laughs) Yeah, for my week, right. Oh, goodness. Well, that's great. So you just stayed. So you stayed put. Yeah, March first of the following year, he we went from him being my boss to me being yeah. his boss, and uh, he wow. they just retired a couple of years ago, and uh, we navigated that change. I think as best as anybody could ask for. It was yeah. uh, just an honor to work with somebody. You know, these are incredible people. They they moved right. from. St. Paul, Minnesota to Cebu City, Philippines and and lived there their entire working career. Entire work, yeah. Just, you know, I was surrounded by uh remarkable people in that job. And uh yeah. this yeah, the president Paul Healy was one of them. So right. Fabulous. Now you left there after a little over 13 years. That had to be tough. But tell us about that transition and of course, you know, your mission at Hope Haven. Yeah, thanks. It was tough. Uh, big switch. Obviously, we had adopted our kids from the shelter. Yeah. Had been there for a long time. Uh, I ended up talking to a recruiter who was representing Hope Haven. Right. And here's this organization, not so far away, uh, less less than four hours by car, uh, in this small town of Rock Valley, Iowa, which is mm. where our service area is pretty big, uh, but our headquarters is here, and uh, at Children's Shelter of Cebu, uh, I had about 135 employees. And Hope Haven is quite a bit bigger. There, We have yeah. 750 staff. Huge. I talked, happened to talk to the recruiter. I don't even remember how or why we had this conversation. But I said to him, you know, this organization here is only $2 million a year, but that dollar is going so far in the Philippines that our operation yeah. is actually bigger than you'd think. Mm-hmm. Well, after this, as we're having this conversation, starting to see all the pieces that have been put together, where I have this corporate corporate marketing bill, uh, background, and here at Hope Haven, we have our own manufacturing company, which right. exists because uh, it allows us to support people with disabilities. That's right. Uh, yeah. But this has really started to stand on its own and certainly takes the business acumen of our leaders uh, within the manufacturing area. But then also Hope Haven has, uh, we have this Hope Haven International Ministries. And so we send wheelchairs all over the world. Hmm. There's also this international piece, which I had as a background, and then at my previous job at uh, Children's Shelter Cebu, we had developed this niche of being able to take in kids with disabilities that, that other places oh. just didn't have the ability to, right, to right. do well uh, yeah, with, yeah. with that focus. And, uh, and I had begun to realize that with the kids in the Philippines that had disabilities, when I first met them, I was really polite. But I had no concept that I could be friends with someone with a disability. Mm. I had not been exposed. Um, and, and there was a real limitation of myself that I had no idea was there. As the years progress, and at the end of that, I, I'm starting to realize, wow, they, these folks are my friends. Uh, all, yeah. we just have some, the, these kids that we were serving had become adults and were just incredible people to have around. And I really noticed that that was something that was that tuning uh. 
within me was was hitting on this this yeah. work with individual yeah. disabilities. So cool. that of course all played into yeah coming yeah. to Hope Haven. So right. Cool. Well, tell us a little bit about Hope Haven. So you've been there, gosh, uh, a little over five years and you came in as CEO. Right? I did. Yep. There, there was an open position. It sounds like you had a recruiter against it. Yep. Uh, what, you know, give us, give me a step back a little bit of the overall mission. You mentioned about manufacturing, obviously serving, you know, disabled folks and just tell us a little bit about the organization. Yeah. So the organization exists to support individuals with disabilities. That happens in a few ways. Um, Number one in terms of our budget is supporting people in uh, as independent of a living situation mm. as is fitting. So we do a lot of that. We have 60 homes uh, where we support people. Most of those homes are, are relatively small where there will be four people that live in them. Uh, and these are mostly adults, right? Or yep. are they also teenagers or... Yeah, um, we do serve kids as well, but mostly adults. Mostly yes. adults, yeah. Yep. So we have a we have a program that serves just kids, and then we do some transitional stuff, um, and then and then of course the adults would make up the majority of it. So, right. Right. Um, our we view our purposes as, as followers of Christ to support people in in having the best opportunity in life that they. Yeah. Awesome. And not what I have really appreciated about this organization. So I followed a long-term leader. So that's the second time uh, I've done that. But there's there's true vision for how to be in partnership with people with disabilities. This is mm. not a pat on the head approach to disability services. Uh, people are viewed as partners. They're viewed as having a voice. Yeah. Uh, that culture existed before me. And I've thought about some of the things I've taken on in terms of structural and leadership. Uh, it, it is really nice for me that I didn't come in and have to say, well, we're not even viewing people correctly. That's that mm. one the case at all. And I hope even has really been a leader in that way. And that I think that has continued. So anyway, um, let's take a lot of empathy, Matt, right? I mean, is that, do you feel that that maybe developed a little bit? You mentioned about the tuning fork, whether that develop a little bit for you at children's shelter and then kind of further refined there at hope. Haven? Yeah. You know, what's funny is we'll, I'll talk to other leaders here and we will notice that we have a there's, there's a sense of empathy within us when it comes to people who we're here to support. Yeah. We have a staff member who's underperforming. We have a hard time with empathy. So it's just a curiosity huh. of being in this line of work is, look, this is missional. It's a Christian organization. We yeah. ought to be doing our best uh, and giving our best. And so all of that gets centered around the people that we're here to support. And I think- right. We do that well. I think if somebody's not performing well to that mission, a lot of us struggle with empathy in those situations. Interesting. We, Interesting. we have yeah. a high set of expectations for yeah. the people right. who are doing the work that they are. And I think there's good in that. And of course, everything has its strength and weakness. But yeah. I think we can learn from that too. Interesting perspective. Yeah. So this may be a, a, a difficult question or maybe an easy one, but you know, you focus so much time on your youth, you know, you're, you're, you know, the, the, the director of development, of the hospitality house youth, all your years at children's shelter. And now it sounds like more in a 
more from an adult standpoint, serving more adults, is, is that changed a leadership style in you? Is there, is, or do you do, you do things differently, you know, with the folks, uh, particularly on your staff in this organization than you did in your, your two previous? That's a really interesting question. I think that there's a lot of tie because of serving yeah. populations that that have been or are vulnerable and so you know from that perspective i don't know how much that that's caused a change in right. perspective from a leadership standpoint you know one thing that i know ties since leaving best buy and being in these three nonprofits is that you there's people get stuck a little bit in this thing that's called compassion fatigue so you 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 have teams that are so focused on this important work that they do at the center of the mission that they will burn themselves out to do it. You know, I've yeah. seen that in yeah. all three places. So I think right. it's a great question. I think they have more in common um, that they're yeah. different. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. How do you, what do you look for when you're investing in the people you hire into the organization? Yeah. I love people who are curious um, mm. and uh, would always want to see that in them. We're, yeah. we're, I think we do a good job here of being the work hard, play hard sort. Um, right. I think that has suit that has served the organization well over the years because there is a certain level of demanding that I think works well within the culture here, and so. We can be a little sarcastic, but we have fun <laughs> work. Um, right. And you know, you, you, we're looking for people that are uh, cut from that cloth and and going to fit from that standpoint. And see, yeah. of course, you know, seeing the mission and the vision is something that uh, it is really going to hit their tuning fork too. You know, uh, that's going to be really important. One of the things, and we all. You, everybody's dealing with this right now, we're kind of old hand at it in disability services is the workforce shortage. Um, yeah. That's been well, a particularly with the pandemic as well. Yes, right. And absolutely. The there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think other com industries and companies are now starting to, uh, or not starting, this has been going on for a while. They, they now know what it's been like for this sector for a long time. And so, you know, that whole hiring, recruitment, and retention, those are things that uh, we talk and think about a lot. Yeah. And it's yeah. just something that's, it, I think, is going to tend to follow us in these healthcare positions, uh, right. you know, for a long time. It just doesn't seem like it's something that's going to change. It's not going to go away. Yeah. 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 You, you'd mentioned curiosity, which is a, you know, a, a, a great trait. And I hear so many, or so many of our CEO guests mention that. How do you get at that? Do you have a favorite interview question that you use, Matt? Or, you know, what kind of dialogue, you know, do you have with candidates when you interview them to try to understand whether they've got the kind of curiosity you're looking for? Yeah, you know, there's there's simple things about drawing out of someone. Are you, are you getting the sense that they like to engage in uh, that in asking good questions? So, yeah. kind of a funny way to answer your question. But if we get to the end of an interview, whether this is director or manager level or something below it, and somebody doesn't ask us any questions, that's yeah. a signal that yeah, this may right. 
be, you know, a great fit. It is hard. That's I think with a lot of things, it's hard to sometimes sleuth out. Well, is this a person of curiosity? But I do think if people are talking about maybe a book that they've read, you know, are they learners? Um, learning is one of my five strengths finders. Right. I know that that's right. something that I probably put more focus on than maybe is necessary. But I tie those two things together. If you're not interested uh, in learning, you're probably not curious, right? Yeah. So, Ask them what they're reading. What's what's yeah. the favorite book on their bedstand, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> they don't have an answer for that. Yeah. Or not. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Great. Well, Matt, we're just about out of time, but been a very enjoyable conversation. But we always ask all our CEO guests, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give someone uh, that maybe wants to be in the corner office of their own? And, and, and particularly, you know, working in the, you know, the social justice space or the social sector, what, what would you say is, you know, kind of the, the key things that they should look for or really want to achieve in, in that type of a career? You know, my observation is that people, we, we tend to be hard on ourselves mm. and, and we've heard it talked about, I think more lately than I had before, but this idea of imposter syndrome and we, we've all, mm. I know when I got offered the job here at Hope Haven and was going from $2 million a year budget to, well, at the time it was 40 million or $50 million a year budget now. That was a huge jump. Yeah. And I can remember being excited to have gotten the offer, excited to have agreed. Um, my wife and, and youngest son, who was, he was going to be the only one moving with us, that we had decided that this was something we could do. Uh, that was all really exciting. And then it hits you, wait a second, I'm going to be responsible on some level. <laughs> Seven hundred and fifty people's paychecks, yeah. you know, yeah. and some contribution right. to their uh, their family on a significant right. level. And what I guess the advice I would give is, if if you don't belong in a corner office or in a senior leadership position, I think the circumstances around you are going to make that obvious. Mm. You're mm. really interested in it and you're seeing your career progress and seeing the kinds of strengths within yourself that might make it uh, possible. You know, I guess the funny way I'd put it is get yourself some imposter syndrome, just meaning <laughs> it's really good to get to a point where you go, whoa, <laughs> I don't yeah, right. am I up for this? And those I really moments this, are yeah. scary, you know, yeah, but they yeah. are, I think they're instrumental in being a part of that push to to engaging something more and you know hope haven yeah a lot bigger than children's shelter cebu was but it's yeah. it's different there there are things about leading an organization that are frankly easier i i have an hr department you know i have put, where we had one person at csc and that that was right. a new development for us um but you have leaders who really own their programs and and divisions and uh, there's opportunity to learn from them. So, you know, going back to Curious, I think there's just so much we can draw from the people around us uh, that there's, yeah, there's fantastic opportunity in them. So, yeah, super yeah. cool. Wise counsel. Matt Buley, CEO of Hope Haven. Thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. It was great to be on. I appreciate it, Brent. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. 
For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the Mighty Middle Market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.